Mustang roundups continued unchecked until one day in 1950, when an intrepid Nevada character who would come to be known as Wild Horse Annie saw blood spilling out of a truck and followed it to a slaughterhouse outside Reno. From then on, she gave her life over to the horses, winning passage of the first legal protections for Mustangs four times in county, state, and national battles that endangered her life and raged for two decades. Finally, in 1971, Richard Nixon signed the landmark Wild Free Roaming Horses and Burrows Act into law, a gesture that harked back to Ulysses S. Grant and one that would be undone years later by George W. Bush, a president whose home state presided over two of the country's three remaining horse slaughterhouses. Although generally overlooked in discussions of the era's great environmental advocates, like her animal constituents themselves, Annie was as influential and courageous as Rachel Carson in her fight to save songbirds, or David Brower in his fight for the wilderness. With nothing but a typewriter and a telephone in a Reno office, she launched a discussion of the meaning and purpose of public lands that continues to this day. And she still stands as an example of how one person can change the course of events, something that seems almost quaint in today's cynical times. Velma Johnston, a.k.a. Wild Horse Annie, was born in Reno on March 5, 1912, the first of Joseph and Gertrude Clay Braun's four children. A pioneer family, the Braun's were intimately connected to the land and wild horses. In fact, wild horses had once saved Joseph Braun's life. The story of how that happened contains the DNA of Annie's difficult and ultimately victorious journey to protect Mustangs. In the 1870s, Annie's paternal grandfather was the foreman of a silver mine in Ione, Nevada, another boom and bust town that now feeds on its ghosts, a shadow of an outpost where tourists pose for pictures in front of boarded up miner shacks and stop for a drink at the local watering hole where a famous bartender spins tales of a violent and voracious yesteryear. When the silver veins were tapped out in 1884, Annie's grandfather took what was left of his meager earnings, paid his men, and then left for California. There would have been an early morning chill in the air that is always a part of the desert climate, Annie wrote in an unpublished memoir. And the horses would be frisky, the colt playful. She was referring to the team of four Mustangs that her grandfather had caught in the wild and tamed the ones he was now feeding, harnessing, and watering, and the foal, still nursing, recently born to one of the team's mares. The children, Ben and Ella, would be lifted into the box bed of the spring wagon, sleepy-eyed and careless, as children are when they are faced with the unknown. Grandma and Grandpa would climb into the high seat, Grandma with the infant in her arms. As they trekked across the desert, they refreshed wherever there was a spring and some sparse grass for the horses. After a journey of several days, they camped at Sand Mountain, a giant dune that is now a haven for off-roaders and others who come for its marvels. The land is cumbered here and there with drifted bridges of the finest sand, sometimes 200 feet and shifting before every gale, Sir Richard Burton wrote in his diary in 1860 while traveling with Pony Express riders. At night when the winds dance, the mountain sends forth a soft whistle, said to carry the stories of all who have passed by, and perhaps when the bronze rested here, they were comforted by the strains of the tuneful sand before they moved on through the lower elevations. <laughs>